Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasting and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality, you dig? Jason is a front pocket theologian, back pocket socio philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band. Today's episode of N2M features Steve Johnson. Not the tennis pro Steve Johnson, but the even cooler Steve Johnson. Steve is the artist relations manager for Merlefest and the co-host of the Merlefest Radio Hour. Merlefest attracts crowds consistently exceeding 75,000 in number, making it one of the largest music festivals in the United States. It is estimated that the festival brings in over $10 million in business and tourist revenue to Wilkes County, North Carolina, and the surrounding areas every single year. Steve is all about that and much more. I call him the Pablo Escobar of Americana music, but, you know, in a good way. Steve and I sit down to talk about all things Americana music, the push and the pull of tradition and innovation, the effect of technology and where it's all headed. So sit back, buckle up, adjust the rear view, the exits for Dixon and Bell Mead are just ahead on this week's episode of Nashville to Memphis. Well, I guess I need to do some sort of introduction of you for mine. Uh, my, I don't know how to introduce you other than the Pablo Escobar of Americana music, but in a good way. <laughs> That's my favorite one, I think. We, we can go with that if you want. Uh, the official title, I guess, as it relates to Merlefest, would be Artistic Artist Relations. An events manager, but that's a mouthful. It's fancy. It's got a lot of syllables. Yeah. So Steve Johnson, artist relation and events manager. Yep. That sounds like you're going to have Lumberg come up and ask you to come and go ahead and come in on Sunday. Uh, it's uh, it, with a title like that, it could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's much cooler in life than it, than it sounds. So. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's sort of the potatoes. If it's not the meat, it's the potatoes, right? Right, right. And so, and you, you also have tofu and potatoes. <laughs> tofu and potatoes. Yeah. I don't even think vegetarians like tofu. Uh, <laughs> so, and you have a background, you have quite a bit of education yourself, right? Yeah, you know, my uh, um, formal education, really, most of it doesn't pertain exactly to what I do now. I worked as a paramedic for a number of years, so I guess that helped me on some levels, you know, to be ready for any of those emergencies that unfold in the middle of an event. But, um, you know, nursing, EMS, uh, formal, you know, formal undergraduate edu- education, and then graduate uh, MBA, and then I worked in hospital administration for years, so I've got a master's in hospital administration. And uh, tracked off down the doctorate route, but uh, I, didn't get, I didn't get to the Dr. McKinney level. I didn't get to oh. <laughs> You know, my mom says I'm a doctor, but not the kind that actually helps anyone. So, 
That, that's the way she defines it. So she would she would count your education in the medical field as much higher than she does her own sons. I don't know. There's the you're the Dr. Feelgood of the music world, right? <laughs> oh no, there's a Motley Crue reference. I don't uh, I don't know if I've ever been in the same the same uh, room with them as far as references, but but I'll take it. It's, uh, it's I guess they're good company to hang out with. The, the song worked out well. It worked, yeah, monetarily it did. I'm not sure anyone's going to uh, put that in the Songwriting Hall of Fame, but I think it made them some money. Yeah, they uh, they probably bought a bus or two with that. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, uh, real quick, and one thing I don't think we've ever dove into, like, uh, you're you're a Hoosier originally, right? Well, spent a lot of my, you know, lifetime in Indiana and then, uh, you know, moved around quite a bit. But the uh, name of my music company is, is Hoosier Devil kind of speaks to sort of both sides of my life, I guess. The other part was in North Carolina. So uh, the IU Hoosier and the Duke Blue Devils, hopefully not offending any Tar Heel fans out there. Oh, man. that is that really where they came from, that that's the combo? That That is the honest answer. When people look at it, they think, uh, you know, they usually recognize the Hoosier part, but they think that that just means that, you know, I'm an Indiana guy that's, uh, you know, prone to, to debauchery, I guess, but. It's, uh, <laughs> Which may or may not be true, but it's uh, depending on the night and the. Right. the but the uh, that, that's where it comes from. So you know, growing up, uh, and spending a lot of time around the Indianapolis area and, and down in uh, down south of uh, Indianapolis, Brown County, going to Bean Blossom to the music festivals there. It's really kind of where I cut my musical teeth was was there, and uh, some of the first music I ever heard was in Brown County, Indiana. Wow. That's uh that's I'm a massive Butler Bulldog fan basketball. That is my that is my team I root for. So they're at Indianapolis Hinkle Fieldhouse and all that. So uh, I never went there, but but um I, I struggled. Uh, Duke played. Uh, so I went to Duke as part of my education, and then I went to IU as well. And Butler played Duke, you know, for the championship a few years back, and I was there at the game. And, uh, I, well, I probably shouldn't say it too loud. The Duke, Duke alumni folks will revoke my card, but I was kind of pulling for Butler. <laughs> Man, if Gordon could have only made that shot. It was. It looks so good. It looks so good going in, and then it just popped back out. That's, yeah, anyway, that's painful memories for Butler, the little engine that almost did. So. Uh, the, the music, uh, you know, in the room that night, so depending on where you were, you know, it's uh, – there were a lot of right, right. So um, I wanted to just kind of throw out a couple of uh, subjects and see just kind of where it, where the where the river takes us. Um, we live in a uh, obviously a world where technology has affected everything, and roots music, which you and I kind of exist in, is sometimes is a little resistant to change. Um, and you work on it a much different place than I do. Can you talk about what, just an opinion, like what do you think the positives are that technology has brought even to roots music? And what do you think the things that maybe should be resisted that should be, um, sticks that, you know, more stick with traditional, uh, as far as technology relates to the music, the Americana world. Well, I was, I was hipster before hipster was cool. So I'm always going to be a vinyl fan, but we'll come back to that. I think, um, one of the, Things that you know, I think it's easy to say that technology has certainly made it easier for people to access music. 
and more forms of music, uh, not just different artists, but different, you know, different sounds, different types of music. Not necessarily, you know, I'm not going to say a genre-specific kind of thing, but you can certainly, you know, get get on your, you know, iPads, your phone, computer, whatever it may be, and with just a few clicks, you're listening to music that, you know, 60, 75 years ago, let's say, you just couldn't access it that easily. And you kind of had the music that you had was whatever you were catching on, you know, radio, maybe in the car at some point or at home, you know, and your, your radio's there, and you got whatever was available to, to those outlets that, that they were able to share publicly. And now if you really find, you know, music that you're not going to find anywhere else, uh, you know, through a, uh, a traditional means or traditional format. So I, I think in that regard, technology has made the music world a much smaller world. And, you know, using music as a uh, kind of in a global sense, there, there's so much of it out there that you can tap into now. And thanks to technology, on the flip side of that, there's so much music out there. And with that, I think it becomes hard for, um, you know, festivals and events, you know, folks that do what I do primarily to, there's not a shortage of good music out there. The problem becomes there's so much, so much music out there to choose from because of technology that it becomes hard to, I think, you know, probably for someone that's that's in the music industry at whatever level, uh, you know, you can discern sort of a, a really quality recording or an artist that you know has a really high quality sound or some some level of uh, you know kind of get this a feel for the music. But I think a lot of casual listeners can't don't necessarily want to nor can they discern that and i think that's where there's maybe a little bit of an erosion for artists a bit in terms of technology is that the market is now flooded with music and it's not always great music it's just there's a flood of music out there and the artists that are really trying to um, establish a career and make this their vocation i think they can find it harder as a result of all of the technology available because really anybody can put an album out now. You don't have to have a lot of the things you had to have before. So I think that's sort of the you know the juxtaposition, the, the tension there between you know technology too much and not enough, and trying to balance that out. And it's a real fine line, you know, between what's too much and what's not enough, and how you access it. Kind of a long answer, but that's you know kind of tease it through both sides of the question. Yeah, and you touched on some of the globalization of it. I I've had this thought, and I'm not sure if it's accurate, but when you when you're speaking of roots music, whether it's blues, which sort of came up through the Delta and through um Memphis and then migrated to Chicago, or you're talking about bluegrass, which kind of started in Appalachia and in the Carolinas and you know, that that sort of era area, Tennessee, that roots music as a tradition has been very colloquial, but now with globalization, uh, the good news to that is that that is that those uniquely regional sounds are now able to be spread to the world. But does that dilute them, and will it, and will it in the future? Do you think it'll homogenize sounds? Um, yeah. I, I think 
because there's there's something very unique about how colloquial it was. So I think you know you touched on something there that I think we're already starting to see at least the beginnings of it, if not not a little you know a little more into the middle of it in some ways on certain certain types of music, the, the homogenization of music. So many people will say, you know, today's country, it all sounds the same, or this, it all sounds the same. But I think a lot of that is driven from uh, a sincere spot. You know, emulation is the sincerest form of flattery. You know, like if you're trying to copy someone's style or, or do what they do, I think, you know, it's generally coming from a spot of you probably like what they're doing and you, you're really trying to do that to pay, you know, sort of a tribute or, you know, homage to, to what they were doing. But I do think you're finding that, you know, and again, I could probably argue both sides of this depending on the way I was, you know, asked to, to talk about it. But I do think you're starting to find a little bit of that happening now and that, um, it's really cool to see it happen in some ways and, and really not cool in others. And, and the best way I could sum that up is to say uh, musical forms or styles that sort of had their, you could identify it very quickly or readily based on a particular sound or maybe an instrument or the way the instrument was being played. I, I think you're starting to see less and less of that. And in some ways, you know, the, the, folks that want to preserve those sounds or traditionalists to those sounds would say that's not a good thing. And then you got the argument on the other side, which would be the fact that those musical styles are starting to blend and you're starting to see this amalgamation of these different sounds. I, I think people really think that's cool, that you're putting instruments together, maybe that never were together before. You're, you're finding, you know, uh, you know, in singing styles or phrasing and that kind of thing putting things together that may not have been there before. And, you know, I I kind of land on the right in the middle of that truly and not just straddle a political fence on it. But it's, it's true for me that I think some of those things are really cool. And there's a part of me that says, wow, you know, we're really just, we're not preserving that, that sound or that tradition in a way that we could. And I think it's, you know, again, it's trying to find the, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just kind of what develops from it. And I think we're seeing those two things really sort of start to emerge and diverge uh, as it relates to musical style. Man, that's, that's yeah, I, I kind of see the same thing. And I feel like, you know, when we've had conversations about this where I'm influenced all over the map. And I think you're, you know, you're starting to see artists really incorporate all that. And, and it is a fine line even as a writer by going, how do I um, allow all of my seemingly, di seemingly divergent influences seep into my material without one, without A, making B seem like it's not sincere? Because it's all literally sincere, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, we talked about like I love Willie Nelson and I love Prince. Sincerely love both of them. There are Willie Nelson fans who would not accept any of the Prince influence, they would see that as almost blasphemous, as musical blasphemy that how dare you add that element into this. And um, and I don't know, I mean, and what are your thoughts? Because there are people that blend those sort of things and they're able to get away with it and, and in others that it's like that, that you, you can't. It's almost like I use the analogy that, you know, some artists 
the the harder they party and the more almost belligerent they are to their fans, kind of like Hank Jr. or a Kid Rock, uh, who I'm not a big fan of either, but it's almost like the more belligerent they are to people, the more people love them, where other people make one statement that kind of crosses people and they're done, they're over. So what do you think allows certain people that freedom, uh, the David Bowie-esque freedom to go wherever he wants and other people – they want people to kind of stay right where they're at. What, what do you think creates that room to wiggle? Well, you know, I think kind of sum it up really. And so, the, well, just trying to figure out how to say say what I'm trying to say here. The the way I would look at it is, I think artists' attitude, and what I mean by that is not, oh, you know, they've got a bad attitude or they're a pleasant disposition or that kind of thing. But you know, Bowie. You know, David Bowie could carry himself into a room and, you know, any kind of outfit or any kind of makeup or hairdo or you name it, and people would accept his panache. You know, it's like, there it is. You know, like he's, he, he owns it. And mm-hmm. I think with certain, I think certain artists just sort of have whatever that is. And it's it's kind of the, uh, it's the je ne sais quoi, you know, it's, it's what, what uh, how do you, you know, how do you label that? But there is something about some artists, and I think some of it is through heritage and lineage. You know, you take uh, artists like a Hank Hank Three or a Hank Jr. or, um, you know, some of the artists that are kind of second-generation artists. Um, I think there's a little bit of uh, they've not so much maybe earned it is the way to say it, but... If they if they sprang from those genes, then they have to have they have to have something in there to work with. And I think people accept that sort of as you can't do any wrong generally, and and they're gonna they're gonna buy into that. But you and I've talked about this before in terms of kind of genre specific or not trying to put something into a particular box. I, I think sort of unfairly at times artists get labeled too in a certain certain box or certain genre. And when that happens, sometimes those statements or those attitudes or that that it thing just isn't as accepted as it would be in other genres. And mm. if they had ended squarely in, you know, there's always sort of been this idea that old school country was, you know, the the nudie suits and the, you know, the the at least the appearance on the stage of sort of a clean cut family show kind of thing. And then, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, a Kiss concert, you expect to see, you know, fire and flames and a little bit of, you know, <laughs> that that type thing. And if an artist gets locked into being in one particular genre, I think that's where they run into the, the trouble about the acceptance with maybe how they, they portray themselves or how they sing a certain song or they've recorded a song that can offend somebody that has, has been in their fan group. But... You know, the short summation of that is I, I really think a lot of it has to do with sort of earned respect and less uh, respect that has been, you know, basically placed on loan or has been, you know, uh, something kind of handed over as, as a respect. And I, if we can figure that one out, we could probably rule the music industry. <laughs> 
we'll we'll do that next week over breakfast or something. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take like ten minutes and be fine. We'll get it figured uh, out. We can hard boil an egg. We should have it done by then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a great way. That should be plenty of time to solve that. While we're at it, we'll figure out all this world peace stuff too. So. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville to Memphis. I hope you enjoy it. I truly value your time and appreciate your listenership. Please go on iTunes and give us a rating. Five stars helps. It goes a long way. Write a sentence or two. In addition to that, if you wouldn't mind, I love doing this podcast. It is definitely a passion play for me. But like everything else in life, it does cost a little bit of money. So if you would, go to Spotify and follow the Jason Lee McKinney Band. Give us a stream or two and put us on your playlist. And then also go into iTunes and download a song or two. We have five albums out. And it truly goes a long way. Every download counts. Every single one. Share us with your friends. Check it out. Support the podcast. Support the band. JasonLeeMcKinneyBand.com Spread it around to all your friends, neighbors, and fans. Yourself. And I truly appreciate listening to Nashville to Memphis. Back to the show. Uh, so I guess last question on that and, and on this is where do you see Roots music going in five or ten years? Where do you think it's it's headed? You know, I, there are a couple of schools of thought on that with the folks that I consider to be, you know, colleagues, peers in the in the industry and the music community. And I, I think because of what we talked about, you know, kind of very first question that you asked, I think that we're going to continue to see maybe a uh, – I think that amalgamation is going to continue of all these different styles, which is going to probably, you know, we're, we're kind of do another sort of innovation in musical sound. And, uh, you know, there, there are folks out there that people say are musical innovators. And it's kind of like, well, what does that really mean? But – you know, some a lot of artists get credit for creating a particular type of sound or a particular type of, uh, you know, approach to, to songwriting or that sort of thing. Most people would say, you know, most people don't argue that, that at least in some circles, that Bill Monroe sort of created the bluegrass sound, even though it was borrowed from a lot of different places. And even he would say that, you know, he was influenced by a lot of different sounds to kind of create what he felt like was the sound he wanted. And I I think that's really kind of where I see, you know, the roots folk kind of acoustic string music headed is I think it's sort of due for this innovation. And I think there's probably somebody out there uh, that is going to find that, that one, you know, whatever that one linchpin is that kind of holds it all together or pulls it all together. They'll figure out how to drive it in and hold that, that place. And, um, so I think, you know, we're really in an interesting time for a lot of things in the world. Music not being, uh, you know, music is right there with everything else. It's an innovative and creative time. And I could definitely see that, uh, you know, over the next five to ten years, there's going to be a sound that's going to, going to I think it will emerge uh, from somewhere. And it may not be a single artist or a single, you know, one single event that, that is kind of the genesis of all of that. But I do think um, I do think that's kind of a next big evolution for for the music. And I think the other thing, too, is there's going to probably be a broader acceptance, and we're already seeing that. You know, you, some people say, well, I don't like that particular kind of music. But if it's not genre-defined, they don't realize what they're listening to. So they can say, well, I don't like bluegrass. Well, that's easy to, to say you don't like it. But I've had friends 
uh, you know, listen to a band, and I would say, well, it, you know, they kind of self-identify as a bluegrass band, but I'm not going to tell you that while you're listening to them. Then you tell me if you like it. And they'll right. say, well, I like that band, but I don't like bluegrass. And I'm like, well, that, you know, and I don't get into the debate, but I do think you're going to see more of that happening. There's going to be a broader acceptance, hopefully less label identifying in terms of genre, you know, genre identification of artists. And then I do think there's going to be some kind of musical innovator or innovation that will happen that's going to really take that amalgamation and, and, and put it out there in mainstream. And, and I'm excited to see what that could be. Somebody is working on it right now in a basement somewhere. Yeah. They're probably about 15 or 16, and they'll put us all out of a job here in about five <laughs> to seven years. So, uh, And that'll be okay. That That's sort of the, you know, uh, time is undefeated, and um, everyone has their time. That's okay to get to get displaced as the major creator, uh, you know, the major, the generations all have their time, their, their sunrise and their sunset. And I think that's okay. Um, I think that that'll be a good thing. Innovation's a good thing ultimately. And I, I think there's a way to hold on to your roots and, and I think you'll have maybe artists who are traditional and even throwback retro and you'll always have that. And that's amazing and great and necessary. And then you'll have artists that, hybrid things and, and put them together in different new and fresh ways. Um, you know, it, it's not like there's anything new under the sun. Really innovation is you take A plus B and no one's put A plus B together before and you get C. It's not like the elements are new. It's just the combination is new or the way they're combined is new. Um, and so I, maybe, maybe you'll see both at the same, same time. Um, might be, that might be kind of a, a cool way to go. Uh, how have you seen Merle Fest change over the years? What, what has been like as far as artists and as far as audience? Well, you know, you, you played there, um, I can't remember now, a couple of years ago, a few years back. And, yeah, 15, 2015. And, uh, you know, I use that as an example to say the Doc Watson called the music there traditional plus. And he said that's traditional music of the mountains of Western North Carolina plus anything else we want to play. And I think, you know, there's, there's something to that. And I, one of the things that, uh, you know, we have, I won't say it's, it's been a little bit purposeful and just a little bit happenstance. And I, I guess what I mean by that is we have really tried to kind of honor what Doc was saying when he said it's traditional music plus anything else. And the way the festival has really evolved over, you know, the 30-year history of the festival, 30 years this year, um, we, the thing that I've seen just in my short tenure there, I'm, I'm, you know, festival number six or seven, I guess now that I'm working on. The thing that I have seen is that we are finding, kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier. We're finding more and more forms of, or, or sounds, I guess maybe is the way to say that, musical sounds that we're willing to, to, Put, put in front of the audience. It really was never a genre specific or, you know, geared to be one thing. Uh, it kind of got labeled as a bluegrass festival early on. But if you look at some of the early lineups, it wasn't ever all bluegrass. You know, there were certainly artists there that would self-identify as a bluegrass band. But I think the one major change is obviously we've added more stages and the adding of the additional stages uh, from the first, you know, the early years was really in an effort to accommodate 
the the musical diversity that that we felt like was was not there and uh one stage or no stage you can certainly have you know you know one stage or a hundred stages or no stage and you're playing in the field you can certainly have musical diversity but what it's allowed us to do i feel like is have a wider breadth depth of of music and artists that we showcase and we're just even in the last few years we've gotten a little more adventurous with the programming i guess is the way to 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 say that so we're looking at artists that we probably wouldn't have looked at previously and um you know not to not to not to be secretive at all but um we you know don't routinely talk about things we may look at in the future but I was meeting with some agents in, in Nashville this week, and I found out, you know, Foreigner is doing an, an all-acoustic kind oh, of wow. essentially, and of their hits. And I thought, well, you know, how cool would that be? Maybe to try that at Merle Fest sometime. And, It'd be cold as ice. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, you know, it's those kinds of things that, I think those are really neat. And when you can find those opportunities, I think you have to go for them. And, and we're willing to, to kind of take that that risk uh, from a artistic and creative way. And when I say risk, you know, it's like it may not make everybody happy, but it's probably going to make a lot of people that are listening to it happy. And some people may not like it, but if they don't, there's 12 other stages they can go poke their head into and see if there's something there they like. Right. Right. And I, yeah. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think a lot of festivals are really starting to look at that model, too, you know, where maybe one stage isn't enough uh, to satisfy the people that they want to attract to the festival. So they're looking at maybe adding more stages to have a little more, um, you know, be a little more eclectic with their music offerings. That's awesome. That's, that, that, I think that's the way things should be. Uh, not that anyone asked me, and at least, at least I don't think they did. Um, but if they did, that's what I would say. If someone were to ask me, that's what I would say, is that I think that's the way it should be. Um, so, hey, we talked about cross-pollinating this uh, on, on our Merle radio show. So what would you, not to put you on the spot, um, you wrote the liners for a couple of our albums, this, this album, the Triple EP. How would you describe us? And then do you have any questions for me? And it's fine if you don't. I can edit this out. Yeah. Um, I need to have those liner notes in front of me. Uh <laughs> The, uh, uh, you know, I think the last, uh, they got the three albums that are out and uh, into one kind of, you know, package is one, really. And the nice thing about, and I said, I can't remember exactly how I said this in the in the liner notes, but I was much more creative when I was listening to the songs and writing the liner notes. But the, uh, the thing that I really liked about it is you kind of captured the essence of, you know, really, all three albums sort of have this common thread of what I would know as Jason Lee McKinney band woven through them, but they're all three very unique as well. And, uh, you know, it's like it's like bringing to Merle Fest, you could play this stage with that album, play that stage with the other album, and then get on this stage with the third album. And, and you know, people get three very different shows, but the way you have incorporated that into what you're doing is really pretty impressive because it really is three very unique uh, and, and different, um, you know, 
artistic forms that, you, that you're demonstrating, and you do it all really well. And um, so, you know, here's the endorsement for anybody that's listening. Go check out the latest from Jason Lee McKinney Band, and you can find something off of one of those three albums that are that are in this, this you know, the latest release, which is three albums. That is the latest release, three albums, which is kind of uh, unique in and of itself. But uh, you can definitely find something there that you're going to like. And anybody that I have played it for, I, I say if you don't like that one, wait till the next one comes along because it's, it's a radical departure from what you just heard. Man, I appreciate that. That's a ringing endorsement. And, and kind of going back to the genre bending, what what we did is, you know, kind of what you and I have talked about. We were handing people chocolate cake or strawberry cake with each record, and this time we handed them eggs, flour, and sugar uh, to help clear up the branding. You know, not that it was a, a sans creativity because it was actually just going instead of the hybrid that we've been handing people, we're just going to say you know, sacred, which is sort of gospel-influenced rock, kind of blues-influenced rock. And then country, we went very traditional, very very traditional in some spots. Uh, and then souls, like straight up just sort of Memphis soul, and those have always been the elements. We just sort of diluted and delineated the elements separately and made three separate records. And and I think it, it sort of, it has cleared things up. I mean, we've, uh, we, we feel really strong about the show and I appreciate the endorsement. So um, you have any questions for me? I'll tell you what my favorite banana split flavor is. I don't like ice cream, but I'll just tell you that. But uh, if not, it's totally fine. I think we should cover that first. <laughs> my favorite? I, you know what? I'm a vanilla ice cream guy. I really am. Like that That sounds so lame. My second favorite is coffee-flavored ice cream. I'm not a big super sweet guy. So even when I have my desserts, I don't like them super sweet. I know it's really odd. My wife thinks that's crazy. I thought you were just going to say you were a vanilla ice fan. Uh, no, although if you've ever seen his movie, I can't remember what it's called. He made a movie uh, where he was the star, and it's so horrifically bad that it's hilarious. And actually worth – it's so bad that it's worth watching, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, it, I'm going to have to go check this one out now. I don't it, think I've – I don't think I've seen it, but now I can see it happening in my Netflix future. Yes, it's so awful that it's hilarious. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, if I can switch gears on you, talk about, you know, like I said, doing the cross-pollination with Marl Fist Radio. So for the listeners on that side of things, um, talk. let me ask you a few questions about, um, and some of this I know the answer to, but obviously the listeners would know the answer to. How did... But tell me how you came up. I think, you know, I, I kind of wanted to call it the musical kitchen compendium of what yeah. you did with, you know, the last release. But how did you come up with the idea to really approach it the way you did? Funny enough, the, the title song, Sacred Southern Soul, um, I wrote. That was the first thing written for the whole thing. And it I wasn't it wasn't in my head to sort of stratify you know stratify that out because it's you know what we ended up with is an ep that's sacred ep that's southern ep that's soul but after i wrote that song and it just sort of i played around with that alliteration and that ended up being the title it to me i just one day it hit me it's like that sort of if i were to separate that out that sort of says everything we are and then it became a matter of well can i write songs and place them in each bucket you know, and be authentic and true. And it and it kind of freed me up 
because instead of trying to make um instead of trying to make all the songs fit within one cohesive 10 or 12 song project it really freed me up to go because i i, I am genuinely influenced by all that so like with a song like seldom seen montana which is very sort of i would call it ronnie Millsap 70s ish country uh that i uh, or Charlie Pride-ish kind of thing, maybe that, maybe some Conway in there, but that, that sort of thing, instead of thinking, how does this really fit in? It doesn't really fit in with this. I could just go, I'm influenced by it. I wrote it. I have a bucket for that now. And I would just sort of write everything in those buckets. And it's really authentic. And I've said this before, but, you know, I grew up in a household where my dad was very traditional country influenced. Um, and my mom was very soul. Her favorite artists were Hall & Oates and Earth, Wind & Fire and The Temptations. And I had an older brother who was very into Kiss and Rush and Led Zeppelin. And so literally the three buckets we put everything, the three EPs, were what I grew up with. And those influences have never really left me. They've always kind of been with me, and they've always been what has sort of spoke to me and influenced me. And, and so I think the title of Sacred Southern Soul influenced by just how it sort of separated itself word by word it sort of spoke to and gave that freedom to the idea of just separating it out in a way that we never have before. You mentioned a couple of things there, and, and you know, obviously you talked about your influences at home, growing, you know, kind of growing up what you heard there. But as far as your personal musical influences, what was, you know, was there any particular artists or, you know, that kind of pulled you into making you want to sit in front of, you know, uh, their music for hours on end and not move away as you started developing your own style. Yeah, I I never remember a time without music. My dad was a rugby player, um, and how his rugby team really made any money to exist was they were security guards for rock concerts. So instead of, like, the security in the Midwest where I grew up in Indiana, instead of them hiring, like, you know, 30 different guys just off the street, they would hire the rugby team, the local rugby team, and, and then they had everybody all at once. They had, you know, 30 guys that would that would be fine. So I went to a lot of concerts growing up, and, and that covered every genre. So I remember being a three-year-old kid and setting up pillows and playing, you know, I was Ace Freely from Kiss, and then I was obsessed with Buddy Holly as a, as a three- and four-year-old. I remember all that. And so I was always into music, but what really made me want to play was my dad took me to see Purple Rain as a kid. And at the end of that movie, as cheesy as it sounds, it's, it's a really, it's an amazing soundtrack. It stands up today as one of the best albums ever made. The movie itself is really quite bad. It's really not very good. Uh, but uh, it made me how I felt at the end when he did Purple Rain and then I Would Die For You. It's like, I want to make people feel like that. And so that's sort of the first time it clicked that this is what I want to do, having no earthly idea whether I had any ability or not. And and that that's still in question, but it did make me want to do it. So really Prince was the first person, first artist I got obsessed with in a way that of trying to emulate. Everything else, everything else before that with Buddy Holly and I went through a Beach Boys phase when I was four or five, that was all just sort of enjoyment and just sort of it was just there, you know, it was just sort of around and I, and I knew it because I, I knew it. Um, but the first artist to make me really want to play and emulate was, it was Prince. I think one of the things that, uh, and, and I think at least for me, you know, I've listened to enough of your music now over the years that 
I can pick out elements of not so much that you've directly lifted or, you know, took a riff or anything like that from any particular artist, but you can definitely, when you hear listen to the music, you can hear those influences across your sound. And uh, I mean that as a compliment, you know, it's, it, you can, you can find, uh, you know, similarity is not really the right word I would use. I think influence is really the better word. You can tell that you've been influenced by some, some of the artists that you mentioned. And uh, it's really cool. We talked about the amalgamation earlier. It's really cool how you how you've done that uh, with your your band and with your sound. Um, for the Merlefest listeners, I, I did want to talk about this piece just for a bit. Uh, we'll make let's talk about let's talk about you. Um, the uh, uh, you just got back from a really interesting uh, experience that I'm sure a lot of artists would be envious of uh, the opportunity. Um, you got to see some of the world that probably a lot of people are never going to get to see. Let's talk a little bit about about that. About the Armed Forces tour, we um, yeah, we just got back from Africa in the Middle East, uh, touring Armed Forces bases. Uh, we were in um, we were in five countries, ten shows over twenty one days, all for military, and they were countries that typically people don't. I mean, they don't visit for vacation. It was Kuwait, it was Djibouti, um, Qatar, as we say at Qatar, they say Qatar, which is interesting, UAE, United Arab Emirates, um, and Bahrain. And that was really interesting um, to go over there and play. It was an honor to play for the troops. Uh, I got to experience a sandstorm. I got to be uh, held kind of at gunpoint, which was interesting. I mean, nobody pointed guns at us, but... They were definitely had machine guns in their hands on them when they pulled us out in Djibouti and, you know, made us empty our pockets and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't, we felt, we felt pretty secure most of the time. Um, it's just a part of the world that most Americans don't ever aspire to go to. And we've done a lot of travel in Europe, Poland, you know, Germany, France, Ireland, those places. And it's definitely, the culture is different. It's very, very different. And uh, not necessarily wrong or bad, and and not really like the news portrays, but it is different. And it was an educational experience. It was a, it was amazing, and it was hot. Oh my gosh, it was hot. It was, it was like opening an oven of chocolate chip cookies when they're done all the time, twenty four seven. It was is immensely hot. The question there is, did it smell as good as the chocolate chip cookies? Uh, no, I would I would say um, that there the smells were different and interesting. Um, the uh, so I think they always say the the hallmark question of the experience is would you do it again? Absolutely, I, I would sign up in a second to do it again. Uh, the troops are they're such amazing young people, just amazing young people that are serving and so appreciative uh, it was truly an honor and it, and it, i will say this uh you know pro or anti whatever fighting and conflicts we're in it did make me feel safe that our military is pretty badass and and they're they're well trained and and it's pretty amazing it was a great experience i even got to wear a a dog suit and have one of the military dogs like come up and take me down and and the dog, like you run, and the dog hits you from behind. And when it hits you from behind, you think, I got this. I'm going to stay up. I played high school football. I can do this. And then the dog grabs your arm, and you're like, I got this. This is fine. 
and then the dog twists. And when the dog twists, you're like, oh, crap, I'm going down in, in an instant. And you have no choice. You are going down. When that dog twists, it twists with such force that it is either it's going to take your arm and you're going to stay up or you're going to go with your arm and go down. But you are going down. So uh, anyway, that was interesting, too. It was it was I would sign up in a second to do it again. Amazing. In fact, we have plans to do it again. We can't wait to do it again. So speaking of plans, and I can wrap up the moral stuff piece with this, what's on the horizon for you? What's what's what are well, you know, what's keeping you awake at night, you know, looking at the ceiling or staring at a notepad saying this this is the next day? Um, well we're still the album's still pretty new, the three albums, so we're still looking at you know, we're still in full bore promoting mode for it, uh for for all three of them. So that's something we have a, a making of documentary. Um, that's coming out that's about 25 minutes. And then the entire Armed Forces tour, we um, videotaped and we recorded uh, several of the concerts live. And so the plan is hopefully late 2017 to um, to put out a, a live concert uh, from from overseas. Uh, we got to play Memorial Day. That, that was something I, I forgot to mention is that we were in – uh, I believe we were in Qatar playing on Memorial Day for the troops. It was it was pretty awesome. Um, so we got so we're gonna put out a live concert thing. We're gonna put out this documentary. We're gonna promote the crap out of this record and try to play as many shows as possible. Playing tonight in Memphis, in fact. I'm sure that uh, all the usual places, just by searching for Jason Lee McKinney band, folks can buy your music. Pick up, uh, get to know the band a little better, know more information about what's going on. Come see you in a city near them, near their listening area. And, uh, but anything you'd want to add to that? No, we're just, we're on all the socials. Jason Lee McKinney, I'll be the first one that comes up. Um, and so, yeah, we're on all the, so we'd love to talk to people. We don't, we always say this, we're not, a, we don't have the big machine behind us, uh, money wise. We're just, we're really just guys out there working our butts off. That's really all it is. We're just we're just a hard working blue collar band. Um and blue collar not to signify a sound, it kinda has that spring stingy Bob Seeger who both I love. Um but just as far as work ethic and we're just we're just a band that's out there slinging it, grinding. Well, I can attest to that. I would say you're one of the uh, they call Jim Lauderdale the hardest working man in uh, Americana. Maybe you're the hardest working band out there. <laughs> oh man, I appreciate that. We try, we try our best. Well, thanks for uh, taking some time to do, give the opportunity to talk about Merle Fest on the radio. Oh man, no worries. Thanks for coming on on mine, uh, on my podcast as well. We're, I'll get it up and out here in the next few weeks. Sounds good. Well, I probably will have this, uh, depending on when you send it, I can probably get it edited down and get it out, you know, within the next, uh, probably within the next week or so. Okay, cool. That'd be awesome, man. Run it up pretty fast. I appreciate you doing it, man. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, safe travels on down the road. All right, man. I'll stay in touch. Okay. I'll talk to you soon, Jay. All right, bye. Well, now that we've solved all of that, you can find out more about Merlefest at merlefest.org.